0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. Plato says, the beginning is the most important part of the work. And our sages say, kol hatchalot kashot, all beginnings are difficult. And I have a suspicion that the two actually work together. Because anything which is this important isn't going to be easy. I'm Rav Mike Foyer. And this is Season 2 of The Jewish Story. Prologue Season 2 So, in this time of national memory, when the Jewish people are revisiting our story of the past and trying to tap into its lessons in order to strengthen our present identity, I think it's worth asking where exactly are we headed? What is this Third Temple? of which I dream, and how is it driving the way that I tell the story of history? Well, first of all, you should know that you can tell an awful lot about a storyteller by where he chooses to begin and end his tale. And I've discovered that you can understand quite a bit about a historian in the same way. Because you know when I first started 10 years ago trying to teach this story, I began my research by reading compendiums of Jewish history and it's quite a long arc. Those of you who have been with us from the beginning know that it, this is quite a long arc and it was fascinating to me to see that where a person begins Jewish history, be it in antiquity, be it with destruction of the second temple, be it in some critical deconstruction of the biblical narrative, will tell you a lot about who they are and you'll learn even more about where they think it ends. So, I chose to start with Daniel, because, as you will call, I hope, I see him as the link between the first temple period and the second temple period, remembering that the first temple period was this time in which the aspiration was that a kingdom of flesh and blood could actually embody the kingdom of God on earth, whereas the second temple period was a process of moving that kingdom of God inside the individual and constructing it on a daily basis through action so i chose to end the first season with the expulsion from spain because in many ways it's the beginning of a transition from the world of the second temple into that of the third what do i mean well the project of building our identity based on a notion of exclusive ownership over the story of god's kingdom really begins showing its cracks with the emergence of the converso identity and these cracks are going to begin to widen as we move forward in our story ultimately leading to a shattering of the vessel. All, a complete breakdown of the past model, which is going to set the kingdom of God loose on the whole world. And I'm excited to talk about modernity and postmodernity in that respect. Now, there is a certain messianic urgency that's been present for Am Yisrael since the failed Bar Kokhbe revolt. You can go back and listen to the earlier episodes if you don't know what that is, but I hope you do know that when the Rambam in the 12th century, well, really, the late 11th, codifies the notion that even though the Messiah tarries, nevertheless, I'm waiting. He's giving voice to what is really a mainspring of power and energy within the Jewish story. And this spring is going to become more and more tightly wound. And the pressure it exerts more and more urgent as our identity fragments under the pressure of the intrusion of the modern world. Already, Rav Yitrach who I hope you recall from the end of the last series, in response to his exile from Spain, was swept up into messianic speculation. This man, who had spent most of his life in practical political machination, says in his messianic trilogy, the Mayanea Yeshua, which includes a commentary on Daniel that he wrote in the year 1496, literally in the wake of his expulsion, So there he says that the Messiah had been, I quote, born before the great expulsion, caused death and destruction for the Jewish diaspora in Spain, since in truth, already then, the great sufferings accompanying the birth pangs of the Messiah began. Elsewhere, he actually says the Messiah would arrive specifically in 1503, or that major events anticipating his arrival no later than 1531 would occur at that time. So, sorry to say, it didn't quite work out but it did feed quite a bit into what became the classic false messiahs of Shlomo Mocho, who we'll talk about, and Shabtai Tzvi, with whom you may be more familiar. Also into the messianic elements of Hasidut, Reform Judaism, and Zionism, that the willingness to wait patiently for redemption is patently fading in Am Yisrael. And this is going to be a driver of our story to come, and it poses a deep question about the expectation that there will be redemption. So like I said, I feel like that now is the time in this season of national memory of the destruction and exile to start a new phase of the story and to think a little bit about what the third temple might actually be. Because after all, our sages teach us that the Messiah was born on the day that the temple was destroyed. And Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, when we commemorate the destruction of both temples is called a Moed, a time of sacred meeting because one day it's going to be the day of rejoicing for the rebuilt Jerusalem rather than the day of mourning for its destruction. So somehow, the destruction and exile that we've been discussing for nearly a year have all along been laying the groundwork for the coming redemption, that the stones of the second temple and the ashes which we eat every ninth of Av are they themselves the material for the construction of the third. Now don't be nervous. I'm not about to predict the coming of the Messiah. But I do want to own the fact that just as I began the series with Daniel, I chose to begin this series with the expulsion and end it with the rise of the modern state of Israel. And it's not for naught that the secular Zionists called the state the Third Temple. Because sitting here in the heart of the Third Jewish Commonwealth, I hold a perspective that history has not offered anyone who came before me. Now, of course, it's true. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. But it's not just that. It's also the nature of truth as the Torah sees it. The wholeness is always found at the end of the story. Remember, truth in Hebrew is the word emet, aleph, mem, taf. That's the first, middle, and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which means you won't know the wholeness of the truth until it emerges at the end of the story. Now, of course, where you begin and where you end will be based on on what you believe the truth to be. One of the hallmarks of the early modern world into which we're headed in our story, and certainly something which distinguishes it from the medieval period, is the growth of freedom as a fact of life for an ever-increasing percentage of humanity. Freedom of information and freedom of mobility, they underlie the ultimate freedom, which is to define my own identity. And I personally have a firm belief that human beings have free will. Not just that they have free will, but I'm a student of Rav Avim Yitzchak Cohen Cook, who teaches that it's a primary expression of our Tselem Elokim, of the divine image in which we were created, that we have freedom of action. So, in a sense, as people in general, and in our story, the Jews in particular, gain greater freedom, then one would expect them to become more godly. And some might say, that this is indeed what's happened. Listen, Christianity has been arguing for 2,000 years that the destruction of the physical temple freed spiritual Israel, and that the divine covenant was taken away from a particular entity and opened up to the world, which have essentially made the world more godly. Now, we've been chewing over the narrative battle between the Jews and the Christians on that front for, I don't know, at least 15 episodes, and it's not over. Far from it. But, realize that the breaking of the walls that modernity brings will begin to undermine not just the Jewish or Christian narrative, but religion altogether. Now, are we willing to say that the world in which we live, where at least in the Western developed countries, freedom and its hand-made individuality reign supreme, are these worlds more godly? Perhaps. I mean, I certainly wouldn't dismiss it out of hand, Because remember, there is a deep holiness in coming to God through choice, in choosing to serve one another. And these things can only really be a choice if I could actually choose. Otherwise, if I have the freedom to refuse, then engaging in relationship is meaningful. Otherwise, I'm simply a slave the deeper challenge of this period approaching the third house is do we have the imagination needed to step into a future which is not just an idealized and somewhat stylized reworking of our past. You know, because the other problem with reading compendiums of history is not just where you begin or where you end. Sometimes you'll discover that the way people tell the story of history is just their vision of the future masquerading as the past. This should sound familiar, since the whole point of this endeavor, this process of a national narrative therapy that I'm engaging in is learning to tell a story of the past that can create a present identity, which is motivated to build the future of which we dream. That means the way I imagine the future, to a certain degree, influences the way I tell the story of the past. But we have to break the mold, because redemption is beyond what we have now. Now, I can definitely look at the world around me with all its breakdown and chaos, and say that this is the process, the seed rotting in the ground, before growth can begin. And that's a very important mystic image, one which I've discovered actually, crosses cultural and religious boundaries beyond imagination. But it's a critical image. It means that when you look at an acorn, could you ever imagine what an oak tree looked like? Certainly not. So we need to keep our eye on this freedom thing. And exercise our imagination in order to visualize how what looks like rot is actually the next stage in new growth. How freedom won't just give us the opportunity to recreate some idealized past, but will actually open a true freedom to a future which has not yet been. And we're going to see that the modern era in particular will produce astonishing new visions within Am Yisrael of how the Jews can be as a people, and frankly, how our world can be as a whole. Now, if our freedom means that we're authors of our own life, well, the Torah teaches us that, nonetheless, God is the editor. And another way of saying this is that though we're free to choose the way in which we go, there is a topography over which we travel, which in some respects limits us. Limits... Or guides, And one of the primary pieces of spiritual topography underlying the Jewish story, which is going to become more and more dominant as we move further and further in time, is the dynamic between the prat and the klal, between the particular and the all-embracing or universal. And the Zohar says that the essential dynamic which the soul comes into the world to reconcile and the key to unlocking redemption itself is the dynamic between the particular and And the universal, and we can see this dynamic in the histories of the temples. You know, Rav Cook, in his powerful and insightful, Le Mahalach Ideot Israel, the progression of ideas within Israel, his truly devoted historical work, maps out a conceptual framework about the first, second, and third temples, and why the first two were destroyed and what the third will be. You know, the first temple, as we said was meant to be the kingdom of God, expressed in flesh and blood. And the problem was, he points out, is that the Kalal, the, the all-embracing, the wholeness, was on the highest spiritual level you can imagine. We had prophets, we had kings, we had a temple within which the presence of God actually dwelt. And remember, the whole goal of Am Yisrael is to connect heaven and earth. So we had succeeded. However, this temple was destroyed, as I hope you know, for idolatry, sexual immorality and the spilling of innocent blood which means what though the whole was on the highest level the individuals failed to be influenced by it right there was a disconnect between the clow and the prop between the whole and the particular and so god took away the symbols of the whole and forced the kingdom of god within where it could influence the individuals and the second temple indeed was that second temple produced the masters of the Mishnah, whose words became the playing field on which all subsequent discussion would occur. Their words became the portable homeland, as we call it, that we've lived in, in every geography, in every time, in every place. But these individuals were so great in their perfection that they couldn't get along. That's right, because the second temple was destroyed for Sinat Chinam, the causeless hatred, meaning that the individuals were tremendously empowered, but the collective, the whole, lacked enough integrity to its fabric to hold them together. And so, it was the opposite of the first temple, and the second destroyed, and as we spoke about, don't forget, and God help us, in this time of trouble, we should just remember that Jerusalem burned from within before the Romans ever broke the walls. So, says Rough Cook, it stands to reason, if the first temple was destroyed because the universal was unable to influence the particular, and the second was destroyed because the particular broke away and there was no universal that could hold them together, then the third temple will be rebuilt, let it be soon, let it be now, when we can reconcile between the two. When somehow there's a harmonious existence between the particular and the universal, the prat and the klal. So we've been following in the Jewish story the story of the exile, really, in the wake of the destruction of the second temple. And you could see this process as one of fragmentation. Without the national vessel, the klalim, the the sort of wholeness, the whole vessels that hold Am Yisrael together become more and more prati, more and more particular. It's a breakup. And this process of fragmentation and dispersion is going to hit an inflection point with the enlightenment and the emancipation. Because it ultimately expresses itself in the question that I hear my students ask on a regular basis. What place is there for my brand of Judaism in this discussion? What could be a more prati, a more individualistic stance than that? When we're all looking for the place for my brand, what holds us together? And yet, we will see that the willingness of individuals and subgroups of Jews to break away, not just the willingness, but simply the circumstance that drives us apart, and to leave the normative boundaries will actually bring the Torah into contact with more and more of the world. Because this is an ideological dispersion as well as a physical one. And it's going to be Rav Menashe ben Israel, the 17th century rabbinic leader of the community of Amsterdam, who we'll speak at length about when we get to him in our flow. But he's the one who petitions Oliver Cromwell to let the Jews back into England, even though they'd been expelled 300 years or so earlier. Now, why would he do such a thing? Because... He now knows the world is round, and he sees that the Jews have gone everywhere on the globe, and he feels that we have to finish the process of dispersion, in order that the ingathering begin. And this ingathering is more than physical; it's about an ingathering of ideas as well. You know, Gemara in says, in the name of Reb Elazar, that the Holy One, blessed be He, exiled Israel amongst the nations, only so that converts would join them. As it says, And I will sow her to me in the land. It's a quote from the prophet Hosea. And the Gemara asks, Does a person sow a saw of grain for any reason other than to bring in several core during the harvest? Meaning scattering Israel amongst the nations of the world brought in more than was dispersed. And when I walk around this country, this glory of the third commonwealth, when I walk the dreams of 2,000 years of my ancestors while I'm awake, I see that nothing could be more true. Because you walk the rebuilt Jerusalem and you will see people of every color, every language, every religion who are telling you were part of Israel. Is this the culture of the Third Temple? This ingathering of the physical exiles who bring with them their cultures and their different ideas? And it's only because of that dispersion that people who consider themselves part of Israel would have ever come into contact with such a broad swath of the world? Sometimes I wonder, and I think we may have come close to fulfilling Rav Kook's messianic vision of Am Yisrael when he says, Israel is as a great storehouse of spirits that contains within it every ability and every lofty spiritual inclination. Through the complete fullness of Knesset Yisrael, he says, and particularly through its connection with the whole world, all the good which comes from the divisions of peoples will be maintained in the world, and there will no longer be any need for actual division one world but not all the same now i have to admit some people sometimes they say to me how could you dream about a third temple i mean for all kinds of reasons they think i'm crazy but they say don't you know it would look just like the church of the sepulcher here in jerusalem if you haven't seen it all the different subgroups of christians have their own separate chapels because they can't get along and the truth is, it's not hard to imagine the Jews doing the same thing. But I say, no, it will not. Because the Third Temple won't be rebuilt until we as a people are ready to harness the tension which comes from the individual and the whole. It, davka comes from our difference as a source of life and creativity. You know, like I said earlier, there was a generation in which the political Zionists sometimes referred to the state as the third temple. The most awful moment of existential crisis that the state has known since its bloody birth was the Yom Kippur War. It looked like it was the end. The Bar Lev line, that defensive position along the Suez Canal, was being overrun by massive Egyptian armor. But Moshe Dayan, the defense minister at the time, told Benny Pellet, the head of the Air Force, to halt the attack his planes had begun on the Egyptian anti-aircraft batteries and send them immediately to the Syrian front because it was much closer to the Israeli heartland. When Belly protested and, and actually wanted to refuse the order, Dayan simply said the Third Temple is in danger. Andy listened. Now, I don't think that the Third Temple can be reduced to the state, but there are some important aspects of redemption in the Third Commonwealth that we can learn. One is seizing the reins of history. You'll recall One of the primary concepts that's driven our story up till now is this rabbinic concept because of our sins we were driven from our land and we spoke about the fact that in its inception this is actually a vision of historical agency most nations need to maintain some geographic center some country or state, which allows them to have any agency in the face of history. Right? When people go into exile, they become the objects, not the subjects, of history. and They become subject peoples, which means that they're subsumed into other cultures. But the sages asserted it wasn't the Romans who destroyed the second temple, and it wasn't the Babylonians who destroyed the first. We destroyed it. Our sins destroyed it. But because of that, that means that our merits and our actions will cause the third one to be rebuilt. Now, In the modern era, as we move forward in our story and further and further away from the medieval and somewhat mythic worldview that that expresses, for many Jews, this notion that the temple was destroyed because of our sins and that we stay in exile because of our sins is going to become simply a mix of guilt and religious fatalism. We're here until God takes us out. And in particular, the notion that the temple will descend from on high, And therefore, that the attempt to build our future with our own hands is an act of rebellion is going to become dominant. And we're going to need to spend some time looking at the successes and sins of the Zionist movement in its willingness to step back into the world of kings and their wars and to break with this religious notion. But for now, I would like to just point out that one of the greatest signs of redemption in the state of Israel is the only place I'm aware of that Jews of every type actually speak to each other face to face. And you know where that is? It's in the Knesset. And if you're listening to me and you're wondering how you can bring the Third Temple about, then I can tell you now you need to create spaces in your life and in your community where people who disagree are able to speak to each other. Somewhat in conclusion, I want you to remember that we trace the path of Am Yisrael out of the Age of Prophecy into the Age of Wisdom at the beginning of the last series. And we spoke about how at the same time period, Greece, and through her, ultimately the whole Western world, was leaving the mythological era and entering into the philosophical era. Well, if rabbis represent the leadership model of wisdom, of the Age of Wisdom that we're in, and thinkers are their parallel in the secular Western world, which is in the philosophical era, I believe that the signs are abundant that we're approaching the end of that age of rabbis. And furthermore, it doesn't seem to me that the postmodernist intellectuals are leading our global society anywhere we want to go. So if once we were prophets, and then we were rabbis, who will we be in this coming third phase? Because this phase is bound up with more than a return to our land, and more than even the rebuilding of the temple. It's bound up with the question of who we will be when that temple stands at the heart of the world, connecting heaven and earth, and therefore who will lead us. So from the prophetic era, that era of mythic consciousness, when God is so present that even in the temple we couldn't overcome the idolatrous instinct that goes with that sense of intimacy, to the wisdom era, an era of differentiation, of maturation. When we learn to stand on our own two feet but we pay the price of being separate from God to the mystical era to an era in which we can re-enter the relationship of divine intimacy as fully conscious partners that we can choose to be one with God because the fact is that today mysticism means that the union with the divine is a state available to anyone who strives for it and this brings me around to the vision of the prophet Yoel, who at the beginning of the third chapter says, After that, in his vision, his vision of the end of days, his vision, let it be soon, let it be now, of a redeemed world, after that, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And when I put this together with Isaiah's vision of the nations of the world bringing up their offerings to that third house, my house shall be a a house of prayer for all peoples. Then I can say that perhaps we have a vision for where we're headed. But in order to get there, our story's just begun. I want to make a request before I thank people. If you value this process of narrative therapy for a nation, and you want to be part of making it happen, Go right now to www.patreon.com and find my M. Foyer page and hit the donate button. Or you can find me on Facebook for the link, or you can send me an email at robmikefoyer at gmail.com. Help make this story happen. And I want to thank the folks at the Land of Israel Network for giving me a platform with which I can reach so many good people. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S dot org dot I-L, for giving me the opportunity to touch the hearts and minds of so many Jews. I want to thank Suom Yaakov for being a home. and I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Hoyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit almad.pardes.org.